Amen. Well, this section in chapter 16, I'm going to be covering the second half of verse 4 all the way to 15. This is part of a larger discourse, as you've become familiar with now. When you look at John chapters 13 to 17, what you'll find is that this is pretty much the extended conversation and teaching that Jesus wanted to give to his disciples and to the 11 in particular, because the, the bulk of the teaching happens after Judas leaves and goes on his way. In the course of this narrative, you'll find that Jesus is preparing the disciples for something. He's not only preparing them for something casual or one time. He's not only preparing them for something that is mundane and ordinary, but he is preparing them for the greatest change that they could have ever imagined up until that time. Because for the last three and a half years, these disciples have walked with Jesus. They have lived with Jesus. They have wakened and fallen asleep with Jesus. They have seen Jesus do miracles, engage the religious leaders, teach in the temple, speak to people who are not worthy and cast out of society. The disciples have seen Jesus do ordinary things, but they have also been eyewitnesses of extraordinary things because they have simply been this, with Christ. They were literally with Christ everywhere that he took them. You know, when Jesus first called these disciples, and you look back, you hearken back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, now, there was a way by which John framed how the disciples came to know him, that some saw him and immediately understood him to be the Lamb of God, that he is the King of Israel, that he is the Son of God, that he is Rabbi, Teacher, O Great One. And so as the Holy Spirit worked even in their hearts, then when Jesus says, follow me, they came and they formed a band of brothers that then traveled with Jesus everywhere for three and a half years. But see, that in of itself is about to change. Is there anything that you've done consistently in your life for three and a half years for which then now there's a change? I think for you who are students, you will relate to that kind of time period, right? And the changes that come. You know, for those of you who are young married, maybe it's you know, three, four years when you would possibly start having children. Oh, change. You know, maybe it's not too long before your children leave the home and they get married and possibly you become grandparents. But three and a half years of doing the same thing is a very long time. A very long time. So Jesus is preparing them for this dramatic change in their lives, in their rhythm, in their schedule, in their responsibilities. But most importantly, the greatest change is the one who is going to go and be with them no longer. So Jesus has been very intentional and meticulous in preparing his disciples for this. I can't imagine a greater change in the life of these 11. So you find in John 13, in the very beginning, he serves them, he washes their feet, demonstrates what love looks like, but then he goes on to tell them, you cannot follow me where I'm going. I'm departing, but you cannot go with me, even though to Peter, he said, you will eventually die just like me, as the disciples all did, and most of them suffered a martyr's death. You go into John chapter 14, and you'll find that Jesus didn't just leave and abandon them, but he's going ahead to do something with 
His Heavenly Father making a place for his disciples. How wonderful it is that Jesus goes ahead and is so thoughtful in these ordinary ways, because after all, this is a very practical need, even as they're thinking about. And that if they were to continue to follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, then they will be with the Father. But even as Jesus is leaving, this is still looking ahead, he's not leaving them abandoned. He is now, in chapter 14, promising them a paraclete, a helper, an advocate, and a counselor who will come after Jesus leaves. Now you could get a preview of how this helps, because even though the disciples won't be with Jesus, they will be in Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. In John 15, we find that even though Jesus won't be physically present anymore, the encouragement and the exhortation is to still abide with Jesus. Wait, I thought he's gone. How do you have a relationship with someone who's not there? No, you can and you should and you ought to abide and cling and abide with Christ, who is the energy source, who is the strength, who is the direction, who is the foundation, and disciples are branches. So the call to relationship continues. The means by which that relationship will be developed and experienced will change, and then you kind of see, wait, we need something different, and you start seeing a greater role of the Holy Spirit because that relationship is being emphasized. Abide in me so that you may bear fruit. Apart from me, you will do nothing, and you can do nothing. He ends chapter 15 by talking about how the world will hate these 11. Why? Because they hated Jesus. And if they are followers of Jesus, proclaimers of Jesus, testifiers of Jesus and his teachings and his works, and who he is as the Son of God and the Messiah and the King of Israel and the world, they will hate him too. Now, what we just remembered in the Lord's Supper also means that they will hate us too. We hold to the same thing. We trust that Christ's death and resurrection is what gives us not only the forgiveness of sins, but then the access and the reconciliation and the relationship to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are a part of God's family simply because Christ paid a ransom for us. And there is no other way to be saved but through trusting and repenting and believing in Christ. So as Christ was hated, the disciples would be hated. As the disciples were hated, we who are followers of Jesus should expect to be hated. And now we come to chapter 16. Oh, let me go ahead and flip this for us. The first point of this morning is this, the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16, starting with the first half of verse 4, says this. Jesus said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Notice the difference when Jesus is with them versus when Jesus is about to leave them. When he was with them, he was able to not only be near them, but he was able to be for them quite a few things that they needed. Being physically near Christ and walking with Christ has defined the disciples' relationship with God and with each other. It is the Gospel of John that reveals the seven I am statements that Jesus said about himself. So, as you think of each of these seven, think about then, this is who Jesus was to the disciples because they walked with him. Jesus was was their bread of life in that as he fed them with God's word, they did not hunger. Jesus was the light of their world so that they wouldn't walk in darkness. Jesus was the door of the sheep. And those who walked through the door would be saved and find pasture and feeding. Jesus was the good shepherd to them. He gives life to this band of men who was following him, and he knows them, every single one. Jesus promises to be the resurrection and the life for these disciples, that even though they die and will die, as every human being who is born sinful, like all of us, except Jesus, they will live if they trust in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, and he still leads and guides them, giving them access. And finally, he is and was the true vine to the disciples, that those that abided in Jesus bears fruit, or they can do nothing. You know, the disciples have been on an amazing journey with Jesus. They literally put on display through their lives what it looks like to abide in a way that we understand and that we can visualize and is tangible. But that's about to change. That's about to be no more. You see, for the disciples, Jesus was life and the center of all that they have been living for, for those three and a half years. He was it, and yet he's leaving. So what remains? That's where we pick up today. Starting from verse 4, the second half, he says this. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? He is preparing them for what will happen after this. And we learn a little bit about the disciples when we see their response, which Jesus takes the time to note. They were sad. They were sorrowful. When they finally hit home that, wait, Jesus, you're not just giving clever sermons or using good illustrations or giving some bonus spiritual teaching, you're actually going to go, really, after three and a half years? So they actually became sad, but notice what Jesus pointed out about them. They were sad because now they became afraid for themselves. Oh no, what's going to happen now when Jesus, who was all of these things to us, is about to leave? They weren't concerned about Jesus' welfare. They weren't asking if Jesus was going to be okay. They were more worried about if they were going to be okay. So that leads us then to verse 7. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. The helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see Jesus there being um, a good and caring and wonderful shepherd and faithful friend, even to the end. When his disciples have forgotten about him, but he is looking out for them. You see, you find the heart of Jesus is that he did not want his disciples to be left alone and hopeless and helpless. Even though he will be physically going away through his death and will be raised to life again, which is all part of God's plan of salvation, Jesus did not want them to journey on by themselves with no direction, with no leadership, with no comfort, and with no provision. Here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Now, quite a few translations actually translate it as helper, as Pastor Hanley taught as well, using the word helper. A few other ways of translating are counselor, friend, and the one that I want to highlight today is advocate. Advocate meaning that the Holy Spirit is someone that stands in the gap and pleads for the cause of another. So the Holy Spirit then is going to come and stand in the gap between God the Father and followers of Christ, but he will also come and stand in the gap of a world that hates them and his followers. They needed the Holy Spirit. I don't think they knew how much yet, because this was all still in the future. But they needed the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was intentional then about revealing this to them at this time. You know, what we learn about then this role of an advocate is this, is that as Jesus goes to the Father, then the Holy Spirit, who then comes from Christ and who enables people to be in Christ in relationship, will continue to walk with them and to guide and to teach and to instruct and to take them from various places of confusion, sorrow, and weakness so that they can finish their journey and their pilgrimage to the Father. After all, what good is Jesus declaring that he is the way, the truth, and the life if the disciples don't get there? See, Jesus is looking at the end, and he knows where his people will be. So then, at that point in time where he's about to depart, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, comes in as the third member of the Trinity, but not the least. The third member of the Trinity in God's plan of salvation and then will enable and empower God's people to finish the race, complete the journey, fulfill their call. And so this role of advocate then is someone that stands in the gap because there's a need, but also someone that stands in the gap because it is not all of the disciples' fight to wage. There's a reason why we're called to trust in Christ and not to replicate what Christ did. We're called to put our faith in him. There's things that only God can do. And the Holy Spirit, we will see, proceeds to lead and to guide in both of those directions, standing in the gap with the world, standing in the gap between us and God. That leads to the second point. 
Uh, can you flip to the next slide, please? Thank you. The first role that the Holy Spirit takes is that he gives conviction to the world. So in verse 8, Jesus continues. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So what is the Holy Spirit's role as it relates to standing in the gap between a sinful, hateful world against the people of God and his disciples? His role is one of placing judgment and conviction on the world and its systems and its rulers. And he does so in these three particular ways, that he highlights their sin, that he identifies their lack of righteousness, and then he also shows their biased and selfish and flawed judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit will reveal about a world that hates Christ and his followers. You see, here's the thing. We're all living in this world, which then is led, as the Bible teaches us, by a world system, a culture, a group of leaders, and a different set of values and a different set of principles that is not anchored in God's word, but at, that is nurtured and fostered by Satan himself. This is directly related to the fall. All of us are sinful. So what comes out of us is sinfulness. And when you project that to society, then one for which Christ is not the center, when our sins multiply in our words, in our deeds, in our actions, and then given authority, then that is how you would imagine the world system to be able to flourish and to continue and to always be with us until Christ returns and makes all things right. So in verse 9, you find that the word sin is mentioned, which is not a word that we use much anymore in our culture and society. Even Christianity sometimes could be reduced to one that primarily is about doing good things and feeling happy then it is addressing the actual serious issue that pervades in all of our lives and is infiltrated in all of our hearts, which is actually our sin. Our sin is the greatest problem that separates us and God and separates us from each other. That is the core issue that every single person needs to address. And it goes back all the way to the beginning, right? That when Adam and Eve were in a garden, when the serpent came and was starting to kind of make the fruit, you know, kind of dazzly and shiny and, and beautiful to eat, Eve sinned because she did not believe God's word. Adam sinned because he also did not believe God's word, but he did not protect Eve. So they both proceeded to disobey God, and that's what created the separation leading to where we are today as people born with sin, people born with a yearning for all kinds of things that the world has to offer, but running away from the only one who can forgive us, reconcile us, and give us life. And so Jesus points out then that the root of the issue with a world that hates God and his followers is that they are a system and a people of unbelief. 
they don't believe the words of God. They believe the words from their hearts. They do not believe God's goodness and provision. They are seeking to earn and to get and to fight for what they want. So the core issue is that we need forgiveness. And that's not something that we hear often, less and less in this world. Now, as it relates to righteousness, which is mentioned in verse 10, we try to achieve righteousness by the good deeds that we do. There are many good people when it comes to doing good things in this world. But see, it falls short of the type of righteousness that reflects the nature and the character of God. See, deep down inside, we're innately sinful and morally bankrupt. It doesn't mean that we're the worst people ever in the world. But deep down inside, given the opportunity for sin to flourish and for us to pursue our selfish ends and for us to take care of ourselves versus to sacrifice and provide for others, we tend to stand with us. We're team me, each individual one of us, if we are honest with our hearts and with our thoughts. Now imagine people in high positions and more authority than that belong to team me and maybe elevate that to team us. It relates to the party that they're a part of, relates to the group that they're a part of, affiliation that they have. Team us, and they might do good things, but they aren't necessarily righteous in God's eyes. After all, Jesus was the one that constantly pointed out that the Pharisees, who were the upholder of the law, who were the Jewish priests, purists, as it relates to keeping the law, he pointed out their hypocrisy. Meanwhile, the Sadducees, who were the guardians of the temple and the sacrificial system, they were criticized as well by Jesus. So while the world system offers you something you can do, what the gospel offers is a new heart. And that God can give you a new heart. That when Christ came to the world and he died on the cross for our sins and he was raised to live forevermore and we look forward to that resurrection to be our own that the means by which you can find company in that and partnership in that in relationship in that is with a heart that the holy spirit gives to you one that is soft one that is tender one that desires to love and obey him even as we do so imperfectly so the answer is not do more good things to be better, but is that we need to turn to God and ask him for a new heart. We need to ask him for forgiveness, and we need to ask him for help. Jesus calls that out, and the Holy Spirit points that out. Finally, in verse 11, judgment is highlighted. Now, it is actually often the people in authority in our world that pronounces all kinds of judgments, right or wrong, good or bad, legal or illegal, but you also find oftentimes that it is the gatekeepers who are at times the perpetrators of crime. A bunch of names come to mind. Most recently, I just uh, scrolled through the Netflix documentary on Bernie Madoff, and I remember when it was all happening, I was, I think, too young to appreciate how awful and sinister a lot of that was, and how broad and how extensive it was. So that was helpful for me to go, wow. I, even though it's a point of view, wow. Just because you're a position, your position of power, position of authority, it doesn't mean that 
you yourself are okay and you're doing good things. But see, that's a reflection of our righteousness, even the lack of, but along the way, it's also a reflection of how our judgments are often awry, how we see people in terms of how they project themselves versus who they are, how we measure what is success from the world's eyes versus from God's. So the Holy Spirit's role, you find in verse 9, is to convict, but it's not to convict you, it's to convict the world. See, there's a reason why I wanted to use the word advocate. See, sometimes if it was up to us, we don't have clarity in how we see things and understand our circumstances sometimes. Many of us can fall victim or fall prey to all kinds of cleverness, all kinds of merit and people in positions of authority. But the Holy Spirit will stand in a gap between the followers of Christ and the world and say, no, you are wrong. You are not doing what honors God. You are not good or righteous. You are extending wrong judgment. That's what Jesus did for his disciples, wasn't it? See, when they traveled together as a band of brothers, they weren't short of enemies and people telling them, oh, you know, Jesus, you know, he, bad guy, don't listen to him. You know, hey, you know, we're, we're the ones in charge, how dare you? What did Jesus do? He sheltered them and protected them and always pointed them back to him. The Holy Spirit will do that, but towards the world, so that we're able to see more clearly who we are in Christ, but then also be able to know that we stand with God and that we stand in Christ and that we stand in our work in progress in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. Why is it helpful that the Holy Spirit does this? This is where our human tendencies get in the way. You know who's inclined to do this? We are. We're super good at telling the world and convicting them of their sin. We're really good at it. We could point out 10 different things that the world is doing wrong today and convict the world ourselves. But that's not our primary job. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to convict the world. That's not our job. It's good to discern. It's good to know right from wrong. It's good to be faithful to Scripture. It is good to be obedient to Christ. It is good to pursue holiness. It is good to demonstrate righteousness. But our role primarily is not to convict the world. That's not our job. Even though we have perspective, insight, wisdom, and truth. It is the Holy Spirit's job to bring about conviction towards the world and in the hearts of people in society. But you know what our job is? Our job is to share the gospel and to point people to Jesus. And as we strive to do so, he is the advocate then that fights for us. We don't have to fight for whether we are right or wrong compared to the world, although we should know. But it's not our job to convict 
the world. We are not judge and jury for the world. We have more important things to do. See, the Holy Spirit is the advocate who fights for us and changes people's hearts as we need him to do. And our role is to point everyone that God sends our way and that we send ourselves to as well to Jesus, who is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of his sheep, the good shepherd. He promises the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the true vine that you can build your life on so that you can bear fruit. That's our job as followers of Jesus. That was the job of the 11. And the Holy Spirit stands in the gap to then convict the world of their wrong. Now let's go to the third point. Can you change the slides, please? Thanks. The second aspect of the Holy Spirit's work is his ministry amongst the people of God. Let me go ahead and start reading from verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what is the Holy Spirit's function? To guide the followers of Jesus to the truth with a capital T and to glorify God by declaring Christ's work and wisdom to them. The disciples needed this too because the one thing that you know they'll be missing when Jesus physically is gone is they will actually be missing Jesus himself and his words and his habits, and his rhythms, and his wisdom, and his prayers, and his teaching. As they've known it for the last three and a half years, it will be gone. But see, God is the one who gave Christ the truth that came out of his mouth. The Holy Spirit then will give us and point us to that truth. This is what the disciples needed. You see in verse 12, and I'm kind of reading a little bit into this, but Jesus specifically says, I have a lot more things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. I mean, it really does sound like a man, you know, he's, he's about to go. But, but he's thinking for the welfare and for the good of his disciples. I mean, it was in John where the writer says, you know, there's not enough books and paper that could be used to record every single thing that Jesus did and said. And Jesus even then confesses, maybe he just wished that he had a little bit more time with them. But this was the time. It was the appointed time. And also this was way more than they could handle. I appreciate that about what Jesus said, that he knew his disciples that well. But then in verses 13 and 15, you see then a progression of how truth with a capital T 
comes in to their lives and by extension then comes into ours. So God the Father gives truth to his son. His son gives truth to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit declares the truth given to him by the son, which was received then by the father, from the father. So you see that the beauty of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity in community, in relationship, blessing, equipping, sharpening, teaching the people of God. But what you'll find here, though, is this as well, is that there's not going to be something that the Holy Spirit says that Jesus is like, what? Where did that come from? It's, there's not going to be something that Jesus did or demonstrated or said or taught or rebuked or quipped to the crowd where God the Father would be like, oh, I don't know about that, Jesus. No, there's a unity there in truth. And the truth then has become revealed in the person of Christ, but then as it reaches us in the word of God. Notice where we are right now in context. This is the 11, words to the 11, before the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, there were many stories about Jesus going around, I'm sure. At this point in his ministry, he is a famous or infamous man in certain areas, in certain circles. So there were stories and possibly things written down, but the New Testament, as we have it today, was not recorded at the time of this narrative in John 16. But we get a clue of how it would come to us in the way that we have God's word here. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, this is him interceding for his disciples, but for all who would come after them to follow Christ. He says this as a prayer request. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what did Jesus give a glimpse of right there? Even in a prayer, before his death, before his resurrection, what was the clue is that God will speak, God has spoken, his words will come through in a way that we can understand through writers who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and as letters and books and stories were recorded, that then becomes clear are his words, these words, which we understand to be scripture, then are able to make a follower of Jesus more like Jesus. Now, the disciples are probably thinking ahead, oh, what might this look like? They could have never imagined a book or a device or anything, I'm sure. All they had were the stories and the experiences that they went through and they heard. But see, Jesus was looking ahead. And to us, we have that now. We have Scripture. See, the disciples were concerned because they were so used to Christ with us. But now it is God's word that declares to us Christ in you, the hope of glory. You don't need Christ with you. Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. That to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That you are made new creations according to Scripture. You are no longer in Adam, in the flesh, in your sin. These are all truths from God's Word. We're reminded in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, as well, that the journey that we're on, that the journey the disciples were on, that Jesus expected them to finish and desire for them to reach the end. Where Paul says then, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is God's word, and that reminds us, if you're in Christ, you will finish. So carry on and continue. Those are just a few verses that remind us of what it looks like if we are in Christ, but then also what it looks like when the Holy Spirit brings truth to our hearing, but even more importantly, into a place of faith and application. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit right now as we speak. He is doing this in your life personally. He is doing this in your home. He is doing this in this church, and he is doing it through us in the world. That's why whenever Christians are gathered, Scripture is read, it is preached, it is taught, it is remembered. That there's a regular proclamation of truth with a capital T so that we can know God, know his will, and also obey Christ's commands joyfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit's doing all of that in pointing us to the truth and in making the truth understandable and in making the truth take root and in giving glory to God by pointing us to Christ through his word. Even then, he is being an advocate there because often it is us, especially when we wander from a regular rhythm of communing with God in his word and in prayer. A lot of times we have our ups and downs in life, even as followers of Jesus. It is us that sometimes cast doubt on our own relationship with God, on the truth of the gospel, on whether this is believable or right or good. But the Holy Spirit is working, and he works through his word. So here's the big idea for this morning. The Holy Spirit is the indispensable advocate who empowers Christ's disciples in righteousness and truth. The Holy Spirit is the indispensable advocate who empowers Christ's disciples in righteousness and truth. And as you're thinking about that for a moment, let me just share a couple more thoughts to conclude. So we have to remember that we're on a journey. We really do. That being a Christian is never just a snapshot. It's never just a moment in time or a season of your life. That being a Christian means that you're called to follow Jesus the way that the disciples did and the means by which then that calling is fulfilled is actually they make it to the end, which Jesus does and says and promises in all kinds of ways to assure them, follow me, you will finish. But that is the trajectory. That is 
the goal. That is the aim. Not to just be Christian for a moment, Christian for a season, Christian for a stage, but to follow Jesus to the end. So then with that, and the Holy Spirit as our indispensable advocate, what are some ways in which we really need to anchor down in the way that the disciples were told that great changes are about to happen and that you need to remember this? Number one, your church family. You notice how when Jesus called the disciples, he didn't call them and have like, you know, communication with 12 different people, you know, kind of all in the messaging thread and let's just get together once in a while. He called them, they left everything, they followed. Why? Because there's a corporate nature to being a Christian. Most of us are part of a family in some way, even if maybe they're a close-knit group of friends and we see them that way. What is natural? That if you don't see them or hear from them or meet with them in a while, if you haven't had a meal, you miss them. Something doesn't seem right. What's wrong with my family, right? Or if ordinary things like that don't go well, conflicts happen, issues arise, you're like, oh, oh that's hard. What's wrong with my family? You're thinking that. Well, by the same token, when Christ called for flowers, he was really calling them to follow him to become a part of the household of God. That they weren't meant to follow Jesus alone, ever. There's a reason why he intentionally said all these things to the eleven. You know, after the one that he knew was going to betray him leaves, okay, you, you go, you're not a part of this anyway. But eleven, he extended this entire discourse to eleven people together in the same place sharing a meal. Why? Because that was their identity. If you're a Christian, you belong in a family. In a family where you are spiritual brothers and sisters, not because of what you have done, what you look like, how tall or short you are, or what gender you, you were born, and what God had designed, but it's because you're a family. See, it is a spiritual family that gives insight and also trajectory and also redemption to the earthly family. The earthly family will always end, every single one. But the spiritual family lives forever. Forever family is in Christ. So the local church needs to be a priority for you. I'm not saying that it has to be this local church, but there should be a local church for which you belong to, you are committed to, and that as the Holy Spirit is working amongst his people, you are there too. You realize who missed out on all this? Judas. And again, we knew that he wasn't a part of them. But he missed it all. Didn't even get to read the Bible. Missed it all. You need to be there. And the local church is the place where we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. The importance of in Christ needs to be distinguished from in church. Right now, you're in church. And as you're in church, some of you are in Christ. But just because you're in church doesn't mean you're in Christ. But on the flip side, if you're in Christ, you got to push yourself into the church, the people. That's why we invite and encourage you, if you're a Christian, to take a step of joyful obedience and get baptized. If you're a baptized Christian, join a church. And however it is that church welcomes and accepts and recognizes that so that you can commit your life with others in pursuing a vision that God has given to them. 
which here in FCBC Walnut is to be a vibrant church of disciple makers, and we believe that, and we're working on that. The church is where the Holy Spirit will always work, even though we are imperfect and flawed, because he is doing his work to point us to the truth as he shows a mirror to the world, convicts them, and then calls us and equips us and prepares us towards holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit always works in the church. So if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, please be in church, not just physically in church, in church. And if you have any questions about this, please talk to us at the Next Steps table afterwards. We'd be glad to answer any questions that you may have. Now, in the home where the family is supposed to be like a little church, then applying this would be where you're constantly directing your attention towards the truth that the Holy Spirit has inspired, but then also is pointing us to. Teach your children the Bible and the truth. Remind one another as husband and wife of the Bible and the truth. The home is where it all begins. And it is the home then that comes into the church. And as each member of a household is in Christ, then they could be in church. But the home is where the stewardship begins. So as the Holy Spirit is working to make God's word available and clear, give it a place in your home. It doesn't have to be, you don't, as parents, don't have to preach sermons to each other or to your kids. Trust me, don't do that. Do not do that. But you should be rehearsing and remembering biblical truth as often as you can, both personally in developing habits and rhythm of walking with God through his word, and then also how you encourage each other. It takes wisdom to know the best way to do it. It takes wisdom to know how long, what book, which way. But don't forget, the Holy Spirit ministers to us and our hearts through God's word. Do not leave your home without the witness of Christ. And finally, out in the world, outside these four walls, which is where we're all going when we exit from this place today, let's remember that we have nothing to be afraid of the world. It is John who wrote later in 1 John 4, 4, that he declares, Christ who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He also says in chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So you don't need to fear the world, even as the way you live and what you believe might be different than the world and its systems. So as the Holy Spirit works, let him do his job. Let him continue to shine a light and hold up a mirror to a society without Christ and bring about the conviction that becomes clear to us and in his timing reveal to them the world, even as we're in the world, but to them when we say that with love. But then for us, let's be known in this post-Christian culture about people, to be people that tell others and show others and point others to the beauty of the God that we worship. The complete salvation and forgiveness and belonging that one who is in Christ 
is able to have and the true power for transformation that the Holy Spirit gives supernaturally in every heart as they repent and believe in Christ. This is why we're excited about Obria. Because we want to let the world know what we are for, not only what we're against. And we are for God's design, we are for God's intent, and we are for what is good for us as his image bearers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of coming to your word. And we do thank you, Father, that even as we hear what Jesus said to the disciples, we're reminded of the precious truth that is being declared and continually made clear through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives today. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us, God, that it is useful, that it is life-giving, and that we cannot live without it in the way that the disciples could not imagine living without Jesus. Help us to draw near to your word in our homes, in the church, and take it to the world. But we also thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit, who is our advocate, that in this culture at times of tension and disagreement and conflict, Father, that our role is not just to defend ourselves, but Father, the Holy Spirit has already convicted the world, and that the ruler of this world has lost. So Father, help us to live for Christ today. Help us to know the truth and love it, but help us to declare the truth through our words and our actions. And I pray, Father, for anyone here in this worship service who is in church but is desiring to know Jesus more and to repent and believe and trust in him for forgiveness of sins. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would move now. I also pray, Lord, for those who may have been thinking about what their next steps are as a Christian. God, that you will lead and guide them, that you will illuminate your word to them personally and also as a part of this church. And I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us, that just as much as Jesus did not want to abandon his disciples, Lord, that you have never abandoned us. You are with us, you are in us, and we are in you through Christ. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.